Good morning, Jennifer. Hi. Hi. <laughs> thanks for taking the time this morning. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I know you're, um, I, I saw a very interesting, and I apologize for not remembering right offhand, an interview you did. It was on, I think, on YouTube or certainly online. But uh, you, you kind of ran through it, and I thought, oh, you know, you mentioned, um, and I'm jumping around here, but with Mary Tyler Moore show mm -hmm. and the character of the Betty White played in that show. Right. And that you had, I guess, not realized that she was actually recreating a part. Right. That she, I, I don't know about the uh, uh, stone cold bitch part. No, that was definitely <laughs> not. That was, it was clear that that was not part of it. The joke yeah. was that wouldn't it be funny if it turned yeah. out that Betty White. Was exactly. And, and of course, <laughs> that was the, the nature of that show to, to kind of make fun of, of right. things. But well, we, we'll start with, I guess, Betty. But let, let's tell everybody, first of all, I'm sorry, Jennifer, and then your middle name, Keishan, Keishan Armstrong, author of When Women Invented TV. And this is going back to the early days of television with a spotlighting, I guess, four pioneers in very different ways, women that I think you can say it better than I, but exhibited um, just, just sort of a, a real pioneer spirit in, in what they did. Um, Betty White, perhaps the best known because, well, she just keeps going and going, um, was was really, you know, kind of the morning show type person, right, in, in, in L.A.? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is the thing you mentioned them being pioneers, and it's the best word for it because like you have to cast yourself back and realize this was a completely new medium. No one knew what to do on it. Um, and I know that it's like hard to conceptualize now, but it was brand new. And so they were trying to figure everything out. And, you know, in Betty's case, it was, she really sort of solved a problem because a huge question at the time, this is like late forties, um, was what on earth do you do all day with television? Um, <laughs> You know, they were kind of they kind of understood like nighttime. It was it was already taking shape the way we sort of would recognize it as more modern. But, you know, entertainment programs, variety programs and a little bit of scripted stuff. And but, you know, and that kind of mimicked radio, but they didn't really know what to do all day. And so one answer that they came up with at a Los Angeles station was that they just put Betty White and her co host Al Jarvis on the air for five and a half hours a day, six days a week. And they had no scripts and they had, you know, they were just basically improvising an entire daytime television show for five and a half hours a day, six days a week. It was like radio, uh, you know, sort of talk radio or something, mm -hmm. but the camera's on you and, and, uh, Going, going for what five hours, five and a half hours, as as it turned out, they, they kept extending it, didn't they? This the station, yes. it, yeah, they it, had started more at like five or four or five, and then they kind of like went to the five and a half, and then they added the other day, the sixth day. So there was only one; she only had one day off, huh. and yeah, they were just making it up. And like you said, it really started out very much mimicking. Uh, Al Jarvis, her co-host, was a DJ. And so it very much, they just figured like, I don't know, we'll put them on the air. And they literally sat and just played records at first. <laughs> and then they found that while they were playing records, they would still be on the screen and they'd be chatting with each other, but the audience couldn't hear them. They could hear the record. And the audience started 
you know, calling in and writing in and saying, we hate this. We want to know what Al and Betty are saying. We don't want to hear the records. So that's sort of how that was the first big evolution. And from there, they just made it up. And so they did everything from, you know, sort of more like comedy sketches to bantering. They delivered all of their own ads, which would often be, you know, dozens in one day. And, you know, kind of just, and they sometimes have guests. It was just a little bit of everything because they had to fill all of this time. And of course, Betty White moved on to other roles uh, through television. And uh, as we just started off by saying, uh, you know, kind of Golden Girls was, was perhaps where a lot of folks uh, know, know her or, have, you know, seen her. But uh, then, then the uh, Mary Tyler Moore, which, what, preceded Golden Girls, right? I mean, I'm getting the order out of order there. because Yeah. The, Golden Girls came Golden in Girls later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but now we've got some other pioneers. Gertrude Berg, um, you play, you know, the, the Jewish mama uh, that, that has become really a, a stereotypical. Maybe it was in her time. Uh, she started on radio, was a big radio hit. And uh, you, you made an interesting point about how she she pitched this to the head of CBS at the time. The, the idea of going on TV. Yes, absolutely. She really saw the potential, I think. And she was, I mean, something that comes up a lot in the book is just that she was a fierce businesswoman in the end. And her main goal was to keep the Goldbergs, her show going in any form possible, as long as possible. And it kind of like run its course on radio, right? It had been on 17 years. So if you have a family show, you know, the kids have grown up, moved out, the whole thing. And Mm -hmm. she really saw an opportunity in a a variety of ways to start over. First of all, she could start her family over on TV. You know, the kids run them back to preteens and start there. And also, I think she just was good at she understood the power. And I don't know if she really understood how good she was going to be at it. But she was also extraordinarily gifted at specifically television. Um, She's just super charismatic. You can actually look up clips of her show if you look up, you know, online, Gertrude Berg, Goldbergs, and you can see some of her. And there's just something about her. She is just endlessly watchable. She also delivered her own commercials kind of famously in character. And they are so fun to watch that you do not care that she's trying to sell you like Sanka decaffeinated coffee. She is just so watchable. And she pitched (laughs) this idea to... Bill Paley. I mean, she actually pitched it to all of the networks and they all turned her down once. And then she just was determined to, you know, she marched back to William Paley because she had been on his radio network for so long. And she said, you know, I kept your network afloat during the depression and world war II. You owe me this, put me on the air. And he did. And Mm -hmm. it was really TV's first big sitcom hit. Um, It was, you know, there's all kinds of evidence of this, but one of the biggest pieces of evidence is it was the first show to become um, a movie. And, you know, it was really like those first couple years of it, it was a sensation because, you know, you have to also go back and remember, nobody was really doing this on television. You know, there weren't very many sitcoms at all yet. And this was the first big one. And, you know, people went nuts. I read her... um, fan letters and her archives. And it was so fun to see people saying specifically what it meant to them to be able to see the Goldbergs, you know, instead of just hear them on the radio. And, and I guess there's something to be said for, 
uh, and, and I'll let others say this because, you know, maybe it needs to be refined further, but the, the general public, again, new to television, but they're already familiar with the radio show. And so, you know, they come in with a little bit of a, you know, understanding, but it's also a spotlight on the, on the, the, the Jewish uh, life mm -hmm. uh, that, that maybe, you know, people have a curiosity about or, or interest in, or, you know, just depending on their background, I, you know, I, I, I kind of almost equate it with the, the radio success of Amos and Andy, which is controversial as it is now, of course, politically incorrect we have white guys playing black um but there was that fascination with a culture that people didn't know and or wanted to know or whatever or thought they knew whatever the way right way to put it is but uh, you know you you had a great success there and she um she wanted you know i think Gertrude Berg, how did she wind up what was her i know she she died at what, a relatively young age? She I did. She that's... died in her 60s and um, her relatives really felt strongly that, you know, she had essentially died of overwork. I believe yeah. it was technically a heart condition, but she had a number of health problems um, and really was, you know, this, she just, especially for a woman at that time, you just didn't see this that often. This was all she was really interested in. She had kids and she loved them and she loved her husband, but her husband was extraordinarily supportive. And um, really business, her business was her top priority at all times. And she worked until the very end. She actually, the show, I mean, it's a whole thing. And this is what a huge part of the book is about. But the show sort of ended up quite hobbled after that initial success because her TV husband, Philip Loeb, was blacklisted. And she spent some time behind the right. scenes trying to not fire him. Her uh, sponsors demanded she fire him. She did not want to. Um, and it took the show off the air at a critical time when it was at its most popular and when TV was really coming into its own. And it's very telling that it was actually supposed to be on paired with a new show called I Love Lucy the following season. Wow. And instead it was off the air and Lucy went on to be really the first, you know, absolute sitcom phenomenon. And of course, there's many great reasons for that. There's, she certainly deserved that. Right. But, you know, Gertrude Berg should be known at least half as well as Lucy. And I don't think she is. And so, you know, the show kind of hobbled along, went to other networks. She recast her husband. It was never quite the same. And she finally at the end, at the beginning of the 60s, um, she went on to do Broadway instead and really had some great success there. She won a Tony Award and she was writing and about to star in two different new plays on Broadway when she died. So that's just kind of an indication of, you know, her sort of work ethic and her determination to keep going no matter what. That's great. Uh, we, we have, a, you know, several others to talk about. And, and Hazel Scott is perhaps um, forgotten now uh, by those that, that just, you know, don't know that era. Uh, what a great musician. Uh, a jazz, uh, I guess we could say a, a very prominent jazz musician. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she had a breakthrough on television, but uh, couldn't couldn't break through on on some other levels. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think so what she also got caught up in the blacklist, she herself was blacklisted at a time when she had just started a variety show, you know, she had her own show, the Hazel Scott show. And this was 
super common at the time for a musician to have a show, you know, where mm-hmm. mainly they would play their own stuff and maybe bring some other people on or that sort of thing occasionally. And uh, she was the first Black person to have their own national primetime show. And, you know, this is that distinction alone has often been confused kind of in record books, in museums, things like that, because people forgot about her so much. But she Mm -hmm. actually had that title before, say, her friend Nat King Cole, you know, about 10 years later. And, um, you know, it's what happened was it was actually really on the rise. Like she started out one night a week locally in New York City was expanded to multiple nights a week and then was expanded nationally because she was doing so well. And all of the reviews, which there were, you know, at that time, a lot of the trade magazines, you know, Variety and that sort of thing, they would review shows a lot, like almost every week. It was part of what they did. And the reviews were consistently just saying like, we need more of her, this is so great. And then she was blacklisted and she went before the House on american Activities Committee and was very clear about her feelings about the blacklist. She was not in favor of it. (laughs) And she did not care for what they were doing there. And this did not end up, I think it makes her a hero, but it did not end up serving her career well. Um, Once she did that, she kind of went back home, you know, went back to New York City from DC and soon found out that her show was sort of unceremoniously ending. it was kind of just everybody going like, we're just, we just don't really think they were, they just said it was basically in anticipation of boycotts. It wasn't even that anyone had actually threatened it. It was just that they, they didn't want any trouble, you know? And so suddenly she went from kind of this real upswing in her career to, you know, being kicked off the air and being blacklisted. And I think, you know, this was 1950 and TV really comes into its own by the mid fifties. And I think if she had been able to hold on and be, you know, in TVs all across the country at a time when everyone started to have TVs, she would be a legend now. And she would have, you know, it really would have made a difference. And that, that part is really too bad, but um, yeah, she, she sort of, you know, made this huge television history moment and is forgotten in many ways. I, it's also kind of a travesty to me that some, you know, a lot of jazz people know who she is, but not everybody. And yeah. she really should, I mean, it's just hard to overstate how famous she was at the time. She was super glamorous. She was married to Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the congressman, mm-hmm. and they were this real power couple. They were on the cover of, you know, Ebony Magazine all the time, and people were interested in everything they did. The crowds came out when they got married. You know, she was a really big deal, and it's it's almost as if in several decades from now, nobody remembered who Beyonce was or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, your book brings it out, and we're talking... Um, we, we're talking with Jennifer Keishan Armstrong, when women invented the author... Uh, of when women invented TV about some early pioneers in the television scene. And, you know, I think one of the points of your book, and and it applies to several of these pioneers is the impact. And I think people forget this too, of the blacklist Mm -hmm. of, of the, the red baiting and, and all the, you know, coming before Congress and looking for communism. And, and I know we can, you know, one has to kind of recall the era before we downplay it too much, because there was a lot of fear Mm -hmm. in this country. And I think, but unfortunately, you know, and we look at it now and your book states it quite clearly, you know, you had victims of this fear that really didn't deserve to be, you know, 
scapegoated or lose jobs or get nailed uh, in public the way they did. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And it's I think it's fairly clear, personally, in retrospect, that, you know, um, they were sort of using this idea of traitors and communists that was very scary to people. It still is to some extent, you know, right. we can relate to that. Um, to really end up what happened was often who was targeted were, you know, disproportionately women, people of color mm-hmm. and Jews mm-hmm. and and also just very lefty activists. So someone like Philip Loeb, um, Gertrude Berg's TV husband, was a huge labor activist in um, show business and actually like really was part of the group of people who made show business workable. Like you don't realize that this was true, but at the time, you know, before this, like they didn't have limits on hours. They didn't have, you know, benefits They you couldn't really make a living in that business before these people came along and made it workable. And so that's the kind of thing the big business and, you know, those sorts of forces don't love. And they really, they, all they had to do was put out this sort of, it really was, at least in this case, like they put out this little pamphlet, this group, and you know, it doesn't really matter, it was a group of kind of a conservative group called uh, Counterattack, and they put out this pamphlet that just said, like, we think these people might be communists, and yep. even they themselves said, well, we're not sure, and, but the problem is that they just sort of put it out and let, let the mob take its course, and they, it instilled a lot of fear and ended up, like you said, you know, um, there is a real effect because the first black person to have their own, you know, national primetime show gets kicked off the air. The, this incredibly Jewish show, I mean, they were really overtly, proudly Jewish on the show and it ended. And something that's really striking to me about that is that for the next two decades, there are no main characters on television who are Jewish. Right. And even after that, it really is not easy to be, to have a main character. It becomes this kind of maxim in television that people don't want to see Jewish people on television. I mean, they literally told people who would pitch shows, you know, our research says (laughs) audiences don't want to see Jews on television. And that's just mind about, I mean, this is in the seventies, but this happened when they were um, pitching the Mary Tyler Moore show and they wanted her to be divorced. What they said is they kind of took Jews down in this too. They said the research department told the creators of the show, people don't want to see divorced people, Jews, or people with mustaches on television. Um, That was what the research said. And I mean, it's pretty funny, but it's also like, it's pretty stark that if you think about it, all the way up until like the 90s with Seinfeld, the network still told them, we think this is too too Jewish to succeed. And of course they were wrong, but it just shows you the effect to me of like getting something like that off the air in those early days really had this ripple effect. And uh, the the fourth uh, power woman of of your book uh, is, is Erna with an N. Phillips. And of course, her category is soap operas, um, which I guess we can say now were the mainstay of television. It was certainly for radio for so many years, uh, daytime particularly. Um, But she had great success, although she had to work at it, didn't she? Yes. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's a Chicago, she's a Chicago area lady and she stayed there despite, you know, everybody kept trying to get her to move to New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but she stayed in, in Chicago and built her empire. She was also a huge radio success and literally created the soap opera genre for radio. Her bosses asked her to make something that women would like during the day uh, so that they could sell them. You know, this is the classic story, like so that they could sell them, you know, household products. And that's why they're called soap operas. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, came up with this idea of an ongoing family drama that you would hear a little bit of each day. And it was a huge success. Um, something that's really striking to me is she was making $250,000 a year in 19, in the 1940s with wow. her empire. So this is like millions of dollars, you know, in today's, today's money. Um, she was hugely successful, profiled in the New Yorker, all these things, and wanted to bring her, her, you know, wanted to bring soap operas to television. And she actually did have the first one ever called These Are My Children. And it was produced in Chicago for a national broadcast. And it was not successful, but that was, you know, it's like when you're starting out trying to make something new on television, that's pretty typical. Uh, They were still trying to figure everything out. But she really, really throughout her career and especially bringing her stuff to television had to keep fighting for it. Um, Even though she had been so successful, many of the male uh, executives would be arguing with her about the way she did it, about the way she made her shows. They would, they doubted whether it would work. She had to finance two of her own pilots to prove that it would, Um, but she was, you know, enormously successful and particularly with her show, The Guiding Light, which she ended up, that was her first big success on TV. It had already been a huge success on radio. And she did this pretty clever thing. It seems obvious now, but no one had done it yet where she just continued it on television. You know, she just picked it up right where it was on the radio, hugely successful, and they would simulcast them. So you could listen on the radio if you were still a radio person or you could watch on television, which again was a big thrill. So they would record, you know, the whole thing in audio and video and use it that way. And that ended up being wildly successful and was the longest running broadcast drama period in history because it spanned, you know, from the radio era through the television era and only, you know, within recent memory ended. Yeah. I was going to say that, I, and I, you know, it's funny as a kid, and this is, I'm, I'm not, not, uh, I'm, I'm 72. So, you know, the, there's a long history here of watching television. I just remember when you stayed home from school or you watched <laughs> daytime TV, these shows that you never watched, you know, and, and again, they were for the, for the women and more for the women than anybody else, but the edge of night and, and, uh, <laughs> yes, the world turns. I mean, they were fascinating just watching the intros to them. And then of course the show is starting you you'd flip the station, but uh, all those shows were just part and parcel of television for so long. Uh, certainly one after the other. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Erna Phillips uh, kind of led the way on that uh, with, with so much success. 